Well, I hope you uh, have your Bibles or your Bible apps uh, open uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be starting, uh, we started in chapter uh, 15, verse 12, even last week a little bit, and, uh, but now we're still going to start again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12, and go to the end. Uh, let me just say this at the beginning. This sermon is what I would call theologically thick. And I'm going to do my best to make it clear because there are some areas where we really need to understand a little bit broader than what we're going to study just here. And I think for most of you, that's not going to be a big problem, but you might want to have a pen ready and, uh, or uh, some way to write or text to yourself and, just, uh, uh, t- and some questions you might want to ask. This is a really incredible passage of Scripture. And for me personally, I find it uh, especially uh, encouraging as I read about what my new body is going to look like. And so I'm going to show you a picture of your new body in, the, in this sermon. And, uh, and for people like me whose old body is getting, well, it's rusty and all kinds of stuff, uh, it, it's really encouraging to see what's going to come next. So here we start. Last week, last week, Paul carefully reviewed the proof of the resurrection of Jesus himself and made a point in affirming those in the Corinthian church who believed Jesus rose from the dead. He had taught them for a year and a half. But here we see Paul warning of the teaching of some in the church who were stating that there is no further resurrection for those who have believed in Jesus. And so Paul is kind of fired up here. And look at verse 12. Here's here's where we'll start, verse 12. But if it is preached, as it is, that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? I mean, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Our preaching, meaning our himself and the other apostles, is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he, God, raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Liars, liars, pants on fire. I mean, that would be what you would have to say. They were lying. You couldn't even imagine such lies. But then Paul says, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either because he was certainly dead. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep, those also who have died thinking that they're, that they're Christians, they're, they've fallen asleep in Christ, they're lost. They're gone. It's all over for them. And verse 19 says, if only for this life. Have you ever had somebody say that? Well, I'm not sure about the Christian story, the whole thing, but it's a better way to live than any other way. Well, no, no, it isn't. Verse 19 refutes that. If only for this life we have hope in Christ then we are of all people most to be pitied. Uh, There's another side of that. Greg Blomberg uh, writes about it this way. People who promote such perspectives, 
have never walked in Paul's shoes or, for that matter, in the footsteps of a sizable number of Christians and martyrs throughout church history who would have quickly abandoned their faith if it were not for hope of eternal reward for the misery experienced in the here and now. Now, verse 20. But, Paul says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have already died. The New Living Translation, Jesus is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. We have to understand this idea of first fruits. And I think in a moment you'll, you'll sort of get it. William Barclay puts it this way. Uh, the first fruits were a sign, were a sign of the harvest to come. And the resurrection of Jesus was a sign, he's the first fruit, you see, of the future resurrection of all believers. In other words, without the resurrection, life is meaningless, and if we're not going to be resurrected, then present life has no hope at all. Verse 21, for since death came through a man, that's Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, that's Jesus. Now, we studied this just on Wednesday night, and we're going to do it again this Wednesday coming, uh, this whole area of the fall and Adam and all of that and the cross. In verse 22, he says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. In the book of Romans, Paul talks about the first man and the second man in his theology. And the first man is Adam. It's through Adam that sin came into the world, and we're all descendants of Adam. Therefore, everyone who is born is born a sinner. And the second man is Christ, Jesus, who went to the cross and took on all the sins of the world so that that curse can be lifted and we no longer have to sin. We no longer are controlled by our sin nature if we allow the Spirit of God to work in our lives. And we learn all of that in Genesis chapter 3. So come Wednesday night and you'll learn about it in more depth. Verse 23, but each in turn, now think about this with me, but each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes. Do you see that? That's the second coming. So, but each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, he rose from the dead. Then when he comes, that's the second coming, those who belong to him, that's the harvest, that's us. We raise from the dead. And then, verse 24, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God, the Father, to, the, to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And some of you are thinking, huh? What's that about? Well, you see, Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. He was the king of the kingdom of God. And uh, this is where it says in this last line, for he must reign until he has put all the enemies under his feet. This is Old Testament imagery for total victory. So verse 25 is a quote from a Messianic psalm, Psalm 110, verse 1, where the Messiah is pictured as victory over all his enemies. So God the Father gave the Son the assignment to defeat all the enemies, all the spiritual forces behind the enemies, kings, dictators, leaders, false religions, 
and even death. And verse 26, fully understood, is one of the great verses of the Bible. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So death is the result of Adam's sin. We are not to fear death because death is already defeated. We are instead to embrace life knowing that because of Jesus' resurrection, we will also be resurrected. But to quote Paul, Philippians 1, 20 and 21, I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. And then Paul says, for to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is better yet. It's better to die. So our death is inevitable, but in the end, Revelation 21, 4, he will wipe every tear from our eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. That's what we have to look forward to. Now look at verse 27. For he, Paul is reasoning here, for he has put everything under his feet. That's a quote from Psalm chapter 8, verse 6. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. Now, let me try to explain that. The Father sent the Son and gave the Son authority. Now, the Son presents to the Father the victory over death. So the Son, this is a picture of the Godhead, is equal to the Father, but he submits himself to the Father in the same way the Spirit of God, who is also God and equal to God, submits himself to the Son and empowers us to live the Christian life. It's a picture of God working in every possible way. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus came and went on the cross and died and rose from the dead. And when he went back, he sent the Spirit who empowers all of us who have believed all of that and makes life really worth living. So verse 28, when he has done this, then the Son himself, will be made subject to him, to God, who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Just to put this real simply, that's a picture of God's sovereignty. God's in charge of everything. We, I say this so many times, we never have anything to worry about. Oh, yeah, we all, well, maybe not all of you, but uh, my wife's husband worries too much. And uh, every time I do, I feel convicted because I say it so often, we have nothing to worry about. Now, verse 9 says, now, if there is no resurrection, so Paul's going right back to the problem. If there is no resurrection, then what will those who are baptized do who are baptized for the dead? I mean, if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for the dead? Now, this verse is considered by some to be an unfortunate verse that many Bible teachers, including this one, wish would disappear. The Mormons use this verse by having people search out their genealogies and then practice baptism so that their ancestors can be saved. And I think it's important, uh, and it's, I mean, it's obvious reading the New Testament that there's only one way to be saved, and it isn't baptism. Under any circumstance, it isn't. 
And the, and the proof text, which you've, most of you have memorized, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, read for it as, by grace you have been saved. If you're a Christian, you didn't deserve it. And it's through faith, and even that is not from yourself. It's a gift of God. So the faith that you enacted was given to you by God, not, not by works. There's nothing you can do that will make you a Christian except believe. Otherwise, we boast about it. And then it says, and this is a great verse. That's, I call it an orphan verse because we, uh, we know those verses, but we don't know the verse 10. For we are God's workmanship. The word workmanship in the Greek language is pronounced what it sounds like. It's pronounced poemia, like a poem. And it's a picture of structure, and it's a picture of we're God's workmanship. God made us. And we're created in Christ Jesus, that's when we're born again, to do good works. And this is the important part, which God prepared in advance for us to do. When you become a Christian, you are entering into a plan that God planned for your life for the ages. And it's a plan where the number one thing to do is to live by faith and submit to the will of God. And if you do that, you can never really go wrong because our end is already in place. So I have to go back to the verse. Then what about this difficult verse? Whatever I might say, there's 30 different ideas that I found in various commentaries. So whatever I might say is only conjecture except to say that there is never any reason to baptize baptize someone in place of someone else ever. So obviously, the, some of the Christian Corinthians are doing this, and Paul is really asking, now think about this, why they are doing this if there's no future resurrection. Well, Paul has a final argument for their consideration starting in verse 30. And he says, and for us, why do we, apostles, endanger ourselves every hour? Why do we do that? I face death every day, Paul says. Yes, as surely as I boast about you, Corinthians, in Christ Jesus as our Lord, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus. Now, he's not talking about being in the arena to fight wild beasts because he's a Roman citizen. They couldn't do that. But he's probably talking about what happened in Acts chapter 19. You can read it later. But he was in a lot of trouble from some very dangerous men. So it's really a metaphor. They were like wild animals. So verse 32, he says, If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, that's an actual quote from a book 700 years older than Paul's book, Isaiah chapter 22, verse 13. You can read it later. But this attitude, eat and drink for tomorrow we die, is very common in our culture today. And, and why not? It seems to be the best way to live if there's no eternal hope. In 2 Corinthians, which we're going to be studying starting after next week, chapter 1, a few verses read this way. We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, this is Paul's writings, or, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. 
We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure, and we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God. Now, here's the point. Who raises the dead. That's why they could persevere. And he did rescue us from mortal danger, and he will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him, and he will continue to rescue us. So in verse 33, he says this. He's quoting somebody. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the Corinthians. Most of them are really on board with everything, but there's some in their midst that, uh, that they just need to get away from. So Paul is quoting the Greek poet Menander. He lived during the 4th century before Christ. Menander uh, would have agreed that there is no resurrection of the body. So what Paul is saying is that the Corinthians were being led astray by false teaching, and they needed to stay away from those teachers. That is why we come to church, to learn the Scriptures. We need to be equipped to go out into the world and resist the culture or transform the culture, but not give in to the culture. And if we're not equipped spiritually, then the culture will defeat us. Chuck Swindle has an illustration I love to use uh, that kind of pictures this. It's very picturesque. Put on white gloves, white gloves, and pick up a bunch of mud, and the gloves become muddy, but the mud never becomes glovey. And that's exactly what this is saying. Be careful who you hang around with and who you give yourself to. Uh, he writes this in verse 34. This is very strong. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. Tom Wright who's a pretty good Greek scholar, puts it this way. Sober up, straighten up, stop sinning. Yes, some of you simply don't know God. I'm saying this to bring shame on you. So in all of that, do you see how important the resurrection is? We studied it last week. We looked at it this week. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the way, the truth, and the life. That's what he said, the definite article is so important. The only way, the only truth, the only life. I am truth. And no one can come to heaven. No one goes to the Father except through me, which is the cross and the resurrection. It all comes, it's all of a piece. Now, because of the resurrection, we are saying that Christianity is different from all other religions. It is only the resurrection that makes the crucifixion appear anything other than a horrible end for another failed Messiah. This means that Jesus was not guilty as charged, that he, in fact, is the Messiah. Therefore, all he said is true because of the resurrection. When Peter, and John too, but Peter was before some religious leaders who were after his life, really. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter takes a chance here, stands up bravely and says to them, there is no salvation there is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name, they're talking about Jesus, under heaven by which we must be saved. It's the only way to go to heaven. So the false views 
of resurrection or reincarnation or no resurrection that exists in Mormonism and Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and various New Age ideas of becoming part of the universe, that's what Stoicism uh, teaches, are ways to live in denial of our eventual death. In American culture, we are obsessed with living as if we're never going to die and we're obsessed with being happy. But what if circumstances aren't happy? What if you had been visiting a small village in Israel on October 7th and been shot or kidnapped? What about cancer and heart disease and car accidents and, and death? What happens when my wife or my husband leaves me or my children betray me? What if I get fired from my job because I'm a Christian or lose all my money? You know, Paul is very comforting in this. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that were revealed in us. And a skeptic, that's easy for you to say. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, I like it even better. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. I mean, I think about it this way. What's the longest a present trouble could last? Not long. It could only last the rest of your life. That's, that's the longest it could be. So for our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So it's going to have been worth it. So now Paul asks a question that can only be answered if the resurrection of Jesus was truly a picture of our resurrection. Look at verse 35. But someone will ask, someone will ask, well, how are the dead raised then? What kind of body will they have? Or the question is, what happens after we die? Or will we know one another in heaven? Or what will my body look like? Paul saw this as an attack on creation itself. God pronounced the material creation good. And that takes us back to verse 12 yet again. But if it is preached that the Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And Paul says, verse 36, he uses a word here. In all English Bibles, they, they make the word a little nicer. In most English Bibles, 36 reads, how foolish. But the real translation is, how stupid. What you sow, he's talking to an agrarian community. They're all, they all know about farming. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. In other words, death is an essential to resurrection. Without death, there is no resurrection. Well, they knew this. It was obvious to them everywhere they looked. Jesus even used this fact to teach profound truth in John chapter 12, verse 24. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies... It just remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, and then it reads, a plentiful harvest of new lives. He's talking about us. So in verse 37, Paul says, when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But the point is not as much the difference between the planted seed and the flower. The point is that they already know it is possible for death to become life as their own experience of planting seeds has shown them. And so Paul's question 
in verse 35, how are the dead raised? The answer is God, verse 38. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives his own body, everything after its kind. We studied this just last Wednesday. Last Wednesday. There is a relationship between what is buried and what is raised after their kind. So verse 39 here it's just, it just reads like Genesis. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh after their kind. Animals have another after their kind. Birds have another. Birds never become fish. And fish have another. Fish never become birds. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is totally different. The sun, verse 41 says, has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So the seed here illustrated is to show us continuity and transformation of a body through death. So now Paul applies this to the resurrection, and we find out what we will look like in our new bodies. The last time I preached on this, I preached just one sermon just on this next little passage called Extreme Makeover. So verse 42, so, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead? The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. That's Adam's body. It is raised a spiritual body, a supernatural body like Jesus. And if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So he's saying that these bodies that we have now, these temporary bodies that we have now, uh, he's saying that they're uh, dishonorable, uh, you know, perishable, they're, uh, they're weak and, and natural. But our new bodies, oh, wow. I mean, our new bodies are imperishable, they're glorious, they're powerful, and spiritual bodies. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul puts it real simple. But we as citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, but we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak, mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Wow. So Paul is arguing here for a literal, physical resurrection of our bodies, the same as Jesus' resurrection body, and his new body was completely recognizable. So our new spiritual bodies will be imperishable, but as real as our present bodies. They will be bodies given by, raised by God himself. And the, the way I like to say it is, our new bodies 
are just like our present bodies, but different. That's the way to think about it. Our new bodies will function in the future after the resurrection, driven by the Spirit of God. Now, my favorite illustration, some of you have seen it before, it has to do with cars. I learned to drive in a 1953 four-door uh, Chev. Now, that's, that's the car I learned to drive in. And uh, the way you would work it is you walk out, you have a key, uh, and you have to push the key in on the outside to unlock the door, and then you go into the car, and when you get in the car, the seats are just where they are, then nothing much going to change there. You sit in the seat, and, uh, and then you, you put the key into the ignition, you push the clutch, some of you don't know what that is, but the clutch... <laughs> Uh, down onto the floor. You make sure that the gears are in the lowest gear and you turn the car on and uh, you don't have to wonder if it's turned on because the engine makes all kinds of noise. And, uh, and then you carefully let the clutch out as you, as you hit a little bit of gas and the car sort of goes forward. And then once you get up to speed, if you want to go faster, you can hit the you know, that six-cylinder engine, you can hit the gas right to the floor and it'll sputter a little bit and go a little bit faster. <laughs> you know? So that's my old car. My new car is exactly the same as that, but different. It's a 217 Hyundai. And uh, this one is different. You walk out to the Hyundai and just push a button and the doors are unlocked. You get into the, my Hyundai, and because of all my back problems and stuff, it, the, the seat conforms right to exactly where I want. makes me really, really comfortable. And then I put the uh, key into the ignition, and, uh, and I turn the car on. I have to look carefully because I can't really hear the engine. It's a little four-cylinder engine. And I hear the, uh, and yes, it is, it's on. And then I put it in gear, and it tells me with the screen which, where everybody is, so I can back out, and then I go forward. And as I move forward and get up to speed, if I hit the gas on this little four-cylinder engine all the way down, the turbo roars like a lion, and boy, are you going fast. You see, the, the new car is the same as the old car, but different. And the best way to understand our new bodies is to look at Jesus' body. In Luke 24, we have two of Jesus' disciples, one's called Cleopas, we don't know who the other one is, walking on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. Jesus came up and walked with them. Now, we're told in chapter 24 that they were prevented from recognizing Jesus uh, but it was him, and they talked to him all about the resurrection. They hadn't seen it yet, but they talked about it. He eventually disappeared from their presence, and they realized they had been talking to the resurrected Jesus. My point is, his new body was the same as his old body, but different. They immediately left, probably pretty excited, and joined the disciples. And while they were talking, Jesus suddenly appeared to them. Now, we saw this last week in Mark's gospel, but here it is the same in Luke's gospel. And so he says to them, because, because of joy and amazement, if you're here last week, they, they didn't know what to think. So he said, look at my hands, look at my feet. You can see it's really me. 
Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies as you see I do. So again, his new body was the same as his old body, but different. Then he asked for food, and they gave him some broiled, not fried <laughs> fish. Not fried fish. I went into the cafe this morning and was horrified. <laughs> Can't believe you guys would eat stuff like that. Verse 45. So it is written, verse 45. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Jesus, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. Verse 47, the first man was of the dust of the earth. That's what we talked about on Wednesday night. God breathed into him, and he, uh, Adam, and he was made earthly. He was made from the dust of the earth. The second man... Jesus is of heaven. He came from heaven. Now, verse 48, as was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And that's us resurrected. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man in our resurrected bodies. Oh, this is incredible. So here's the conclusion of the argument, verse 50, the conclusion. He says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood, our mortal bodies, in other words, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Talking about our physical bodies. Our present bodies cannot survive in heaven. Uh, there has to be a change. That change starts right at salvation. Therefore, those who do not know Jesus as Savior and Lord are unable to live in heaven. Their bodies would not survive. And then, G then Paul says in verse 51, listen, I tell you a mystery. Now, Paul is saying he is going to reveal to the Corinthians something that they did not understand. It will no longer be a mystery. The first thing he wants them to know is that there will be an end to things as we know them. Christ is coming again. And when he does, it will be sudden, and those who are alive and remain will be instantly transformed. So here it is, verse 51. We will not all sleep, but we'll all be changed. That's a good sign for the nursery. We will, all, we will not all sleep, but we'll all be changed. <laughs> but he's talking about all of us. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable, the perishable, the bodies of those who have already died, who are rotting in the grave or who have been turned into ashes and spread on the ground or thrown into the sea, God will have no problem with the present state of the dead bodies. So the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal, those living at the time, with immortality. First Thessalonians chapter 4. The trumpet will sound, the angel will shout, the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the air, and therefore uh, they'll be with the Lord forever. Uh, comfort one another with these words. It's a picture of the rapture of the church. could happen at any time. And so, verse 54, when the perishable has been closed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come 
true, here it is, death has been swallowed up in victory. Wow. Isaiah 25, verse 8, 700 years before, talking about the Messiah. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Same as we read in the Revelation. And then verse 55 and 56. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So we're back to Genesis again. Sin came through one man, Adam, and the law was given by Moses to show us our need for a Savior. The law works like a mirror. You look into the law and say, oh, I could never do all that. The Pharisees thought they could, so they added 600 other rules to it. It says you need a Savior. But then we have verse 57, the last two verses. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory, victory over death, through our Lord Jesus, who is the Messiah, who fulfilled the law, becoming the second Adam, reversing the sentence of sin by dying on the cross so we can live forever, raised bodily from the dead as the first fruits, guaranteeing our eternal bodies received when the angel shouts and the trumpet sounds. And the last verse reads this way. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I particularly like the Tyndall Living Bibles. It's a paraphrase, not a translation, but it reads this way. So, my dear brothers and sisters, since future victory is sure, be strong and steady, always abounding in the Lord's work, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever wasted as it would be if there were no resurrection. So the answer is, and my sort of final statement here is, we must live differently. Take more risks. Enjoy life more. Be more interested in others than ourselves. Fear less. Use our spiritual gifts to benefit each other. A life lived for God is never meaningless. A life lived for God will be eternally rewarding. We have permission to enjoy every day. We have the privilege of living every day in the service of him who rose from the dead so our sins are forgiven and we can now show others what God is like by living for forever rather than just for now. Sigmund Freud said, and finally, there's the painful riddle of death for which no remedy at all has yet been found, nor probably ever will be. The Apostle Paul said, death is swallowed up in victory. Wow. I mean, that should fire us up. So let's pray. Uh, Father, I just thank you that death has been defeated. And I know that... Uh, Maybe all of us, or at least some of us, will go through that kind of death uh, if the rapture doesn't happen before we die here. But we do know, Father, that in the end, uh, we're going to have new bodies that are so much better than, than the uh, old ones, even though they're recognizable, uh, that even the illustration I used 
is almost meaningless. What an incredible thing it's going to be to know one another in heaven, to meet all of those who came before us. We have eternity to get to know everybody. So thank you for that. But Father, I also pray that if there's someone here or watching online and they don't know the Lord Jesus as their Savior and Lord, oh, I just want to tell you, you're missing out on so much. Don't live in denial anymore. Investigate the, the reality of Christianity. But really, all you have to do is come to God and say, God, I, I want to believe all this. I want to believe everything I just heard. Uh, so help me to, and I will repent of my sins. And I I'll believe, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. He went to the cross and rose from the dead for my sins. Please help me to become a Christian. And he will read away. And then you become part of a local church and you'll be discipled and you'll learn. And you'll be so glad you did because there's no better life than the Christian life. In Jesus' name.